This is HSBC Global Viewpoint, your window into the thinking, trends and issues shaping global banking and markets. Join us as we hear from industry leaders and HSBC experts on the latest insights and opportunities for your business. A heads up to our listeners that this episode has been recorded remotely, therefore the sound quality may vary. Thank you for listening. You're listening to the Markets and Security Services Outlook, a podcast mini-series exploring the critical topics that will shape our industry in the next decade, including sustainability, digitalization, and emerging markets. Find out what's driving the global outlook for institutional investors and where the opportunities and challenges lie. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to present a panel discussion, and what we're going to focus on is practical steps um, that uh, will help to enable net zero through investment choices. And in order to do that, we have three uh, panellists who are joining us from within HSBC, um, from Markets and Security Services, from Global Banking and from HSBC Global Asset Management. So I'm just going to ask the three panellists to introduce themselves, uh, please, starting with Patrick. Hi, Chris, and thanks for the introduction. So my name is Patrick Kondarjan. I sit in the Market and Security Services Division of HSBC, um, and I'm in charge of uh, products and commercialization in the ESG space. So we work with our clients uh, to find the right solution that help them achieve both um, their risk and return objectives as well as the ESG objective uh, combined. Thank you, Patrick. And Farnham? Morning, everyone, and, and thank you, Chris, and, and sorry for the introduction. My name is Farnam Bidgoli, and I lead the ESG Solutions team um, for HSBC in Europe. So this is a, um, a cross-capital markets team that's focused on, on sustainable finance, um, including the origination of green social and sustainability bonds. Thank you. And uh, Michael? Good morning, Chris. So I'm Michael Ridley. I'm in asset management and I lead on investments where we do a lot of work on sustainable infrastructure, green bonds and natural capital. So the first question is, let's start off with Patrick. And the question is about um, what changes in investment will be necessary in order to uh, achieve the transition to net zero. So, Patrick. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Um, in terms of changes, I mean, the, the scale is in the real economy uh, is immense. And uh, a good example is quoting the, the Bank of England, uh, which recently said that in the UK alone, um, spending on low carbon technologies and infrastructure will need to rise fivefold from 10 billion to 50 billion a year or 2.5% uh, of, of GDP. So we're on the financial markets and what can we do and how can we help? And I think in finance, finance is an enabler. And it's very powerful in the sense that it can hold uh, market participants accountable by actually allocating the capital, uh, which is a, a great tool. So, you know, in the future organization that will not embrace ESG will find themselves potentially marginalized and with no access to funding or at a, at a much more expensive cost. And I think from discussion we have with, with our clients, um, it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, deep changes are needed. And, uh, you know, the will is there from be it the bank, be it the asset managers, the asset owners, everyone in the ecosystem. And we moved from uh, the why, which was essentially a question a few years ago, right? Uh, why should I do this? And, and you know, am I compromising on my returns, et cetera, to, to the how. Uh, and, and that happened already some time ago. So that, that's, that's a really good news. And the other good news is that investors have one more products available uh, to invest uh, into, into more ESG-friendly options. We have better data as well. 
also not perfect, but improving by the day. Um, and 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 we have also clearer regulatory frameworks uh, that are being developed. And the fact that we have better data, it means that it's easier to 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 measure and better allocate capital uh, to uh, best-in-class uh, companies or people who are on the right track actually uh, to to decarbonize or to transition. Today, it's it's much easier for me to measure if someone generates a lot of emissions or someone is on the right track um, for their temperature alignment and so on and so forth. So in a way, a lot can be done already today uh, with the existing set of products. Where the challenge actually lies is more on the on the scale and 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 the capacity, especially in the in the impact space. So the more kind of SFDR nine uh, article type of investments, and here there is a capacity constraint, uh, and this capacity gets more problematic. Uh, the more money you manage, the bigger you are, uh, the more you are constrained by this. I can give two examples. One is in the natural capital space or so biodiversity. So if you think about ocean, um, this is basically the planet's largest carbon sink. Um, but still, how do you deploy capital at scale to invest in ocean preservation? Not an easy one. And if you look at the bond space, for example, there have been only a handful of blue bonds ever issued, and maybe Farnham can, can comment on that. Um, another example, which is not in the climate space, but on the social space, if you look at SDGs uh, 3 and 4 uh, around education uh, and healthcare, the size of the projects uh, you know, are relatively small in general, and there is a disconnect between uh, you know, investor size, risk profile, liquidity requirements, et cetera, and, and the projects available. So the challenge is, is, is still there in terms of scale, but this is something that will grow over time on the, on the impact size as technology evolves, as governance spending comes through um, infrastructure, through things like, like the Green Deal, et cetera. But it doesn't mean that we should just wait and, and do nothing. There is a fair amount of products available and gradual approach uh, can and needs to be to be taken, and and you can see this in regulation as well, such as SFDR, where there are you know different shades. Um, so again, the word here is transition. Uh, things are available. There is a huge amount of change that is needed. I think everyone is aware of it, and we have more and more tools to uh, to do it. So that that's that's the good news. Thanks very much, Patrick. And um, Farnham, Patrick was mentioning about blue bonds. Now, we've heard a lot about green bonds and sustainability bonds. What, what are your thoughts about the changes in investment that are necessary? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, Patrick rightly makes the point that the, the challenges have been there in terms of the, the um, deployment of capital at scale. So when we think about use of proceeds bonds, be they green bonds that are dedicated towards environmental projects or um, blue bonds, which are essentially a subset of, of green bonds that focus on um, marine conservation and, and water issues, um, we were always looking towards sort of um, identifying projects, um, identifying investments, and then um, ensuring that there was data available on reporting on the, the impacts of those projects specifically. And, and I think Patrick makes a good point that the um, deployment of, of capital within issuers, be they even public sector or private sector, towards those specific projects um, has been quite small. Uh, effectively, you're often still looking at research and development projects and, and expenditures within, within companies rather than the sort of large-scale infrastructure, which is usually a, um, a 
public and private collaboration. I think the interesting development over the past several years has been moving away a little bit from this approach of identifying and, and ring fencing projects towards more so looking at, at the issuer. And um, within the debt space, what we've seen is, is the development of sustainability linked bonds, um, where the issuer makes commitments um, with regards to either their emissions footprint or in the case of, uh, to go on with the example of marine and, and water conservation, potentially with the, the resource footprint that they have. And then the uh, instrument itself is linked towards the achievement of those outcomes. And if the issuer fails to meet those, those outcomes, there is some sort of mechanism for accountability, be it a higher cost of capital um, or a reinvestment into new projects. And I think that um, uh, structure is helpful um, in the sense that it allows for the kind of allocation of capital towards issuers that are, you know, making credible commitments um, that are accountable to those commitments, um, while taking away a little bit of that burden of identifying specific projects and reporting on those specific projects. Thanks very much, Farnham. I think that's, that's that's very interesting. That that sort of shift towards sustainability linked bonds, as you say, and the outcomes from issuers and the whole subject of the measurement of how um, issuers perform against those outcomes. And obviously that's very, very relevant to uh, where I sit in security services um, as to finding ways of measuring um, ESG and sustainability outcomes. So that's, that's very interesting how that uh, that shift is likely to, to, to become more in that direction. So Michael, um, last but not least, your, your views on the changes of investments that will be necessary. Thank you, Chris. So in asset management, we're working on two I can mention. So sustainable infrastructure and natural capital, you know, inspired by what we saw in the green bond market with the green bond principles. Um, Fast Infra, which is a public-private partnership, is trying to get a label for sustainable infrastructure to help uh, accelerate the flow of private finance to infrastructure that's sustainable in the developing world. And that's a public-private partnership. We have... Um, a label uh, which is under consultation and we think that will uh, do uh, great work in terms of getting host governments and developers to focus on environmental resiliency standards at pre-construction phase which is the which is the time to do it when it's most able and cheapest to to make your asset uh, sustainable and then it will invite in uh, institutional money that wants to create sustainable infrastructure debt funds it'll give them the arm's length sort of authority to say here is a label that's been provided externally validated so as as the green bond market was accelerated by the green bond principles hopefully a loan market that tends to fund sustainable infrastructure can be uh, come up come up awake or awakened in that way and Zoe also mentioned in that in the work we're doing on natural capital in uh, asset management, we tend to think that sort of three or four things are happening all at the same time to accelerate this market. We're getting the creation of metrics to measure biodiversity, so mean species abundance is a key metric. We're getting asset owners stacking cash flows uh, from the assets they own, so not just sustainable agricultural products, but carbon permits, tourism, et cetera, et cetera. So more than one flow of cash from the asset. Uh, there's a recognition of the double benefit of natural capital. You slow climate change and you preserve biodiversity. And also the commitments to, towards net zero that countries and, and companies are making makes a natural market for nature-based solutions. So we would say, yeah, more innovation, broader array of products, and two that we're looking at are sustainable infrastructure and natural capital. Thank you, Michael. It certainly sounds uh, re really exciting, the innovations you're just describing there. And uh, Farnham? Yeah, I mean, 
I think um, innovation is a, a, a word that maybe um, provokes a lot of thoughts around sort of big changes that are, are due to happen. I actually think, I mean, some of it is going to be incremental. I mean, when I talk about the big innovation in the debt space over the past several years of sustainability-linked bonds, I mean, we've always had bonds that have covenants. This is just the first time those covenants have been tied to sustainability. I also think, you know, some of it will be kind of hybrid structures. So um, Michael made the note around, you know, the need to, to kind of um, bring in natural capital accounting into general finance structures. I mean, that's really tying two things together. So for instance, in the, in the sovereign debt space, you know, could we have the sovereign making some of its repayment commitments in the form of investments in um, in natural capital and the um, investor taking returns in the, in the sense of, of carbon offsets, for instance. Um, and I think some of it will also be anti-innovative. You know, there's a lot of conversation right now about what should be happening in the equity space. And I know that um, there's been some, some dialogue around having, you know, green equity, for instance. And, and I personally think that's a step backwards. I think that we should be thinking about integrating climate metrics and, and ESG metrics fully within our existing equity markets. We shouldn't be ring fencing and creating new products within equity markets to reflect this. Brilliant. Thanks. And Patrick? I mean, a lot has been covered. I think uh, definitely the uh, the natural capital side of things, um, this is a great area. And finding how we can connect investors uh, with the projects directly and create the right level of transparency and due diligence and make it simple, actually, for investors to, um, to access to this and to create structures that have the right uh, liquidity, the right risk profile, and, and, and the right tradability. I think I think that that's the kind of area where I think a lot will happen and and will be will be very critical. And you know, Fana mentioned the sustaining bond, um, and I think those mechanism of of performance linked uh, instruments uh, are happening not only in the bond space, and now we are implementing this with all the uh, public market uh, instrument, and that's very key because. It really in you know, at at the company at the, at the global level, uh, at the high level of the of the company, and that's a very powerful kind of instrument. And I think that will grow, and and those kind of covenants will will become more and more standard uh, into more and more products. So, the the next question is: um, How much of a headwind is caused by the greenium, and how can this be overcome, uh, Farnham? Well. Uh, I, I think the reality is that the the greenium um, where it exists, I think, is 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 simply a, a supply and demand imbalance. I and mean, we've talked about all of the the barriers and challenges that there are right now towards um, achieving the real the scale that we need. And I would say another um, facet of this is the fact that right now, you know, inflows into ESG-related funds, be they thematic funds, sustainable investment funds, or ESG integration funds, are far outpacing um, the availability of, of product. So we talk a lot about the kind of acceleration of, of issuance, for instance, the debt market um, of sustainable products, and and indeed, you know, we're we're on track this year for probably um, a trillion in, in green social sustainability and sustainability linked issuance because we're just about half a trillion um, so far at the halfway point. Um, but that still only reflects you know ten percent of all outstanding bond issuance. 
And if you look at sort of subsets of the, the market, if you look at the dollar market, for instance, um, then it's even, even smaller percentage of all new issuance coming in in labeled format. So we have this supply and demand imbalance. What that means is that, you know, it is a, an issuer's market, so to speak, that there we're, we're seeing, you know, um, a greenium um, and in most cases, although I would even point to the fact that in sectors where green issuance is more commonplace. So for instance, in, in utilities, um, that greenium is much smaller um, and we're seeing it, it, it shrink. So really what we need um, is to uh, you know, uh, address some of these barriers that we've been talking about so that the, the market grows. Um, and then you know, when we get to what I think has always been the intended outcome um, uh, of, of this, which is that you know, all finance is sustainable, um, then I don't think you'll see this kind of um, greenium, so to speak. There might be a penalty on the other side um, for issuers that are not following down this path. Um, but we'll we'll have eliminated the greenium. Thank you, thank you, Farnham and um, Michael. Do you have um, th- thoughts on the greenium headwind? Yeah, of course. I mean, there's sort of two ways of talking about the greenium. In one respect, you talk about it in the green bond market, green versus non-green, and, and you know that's a fascinating conversation. I mean, I tend to think a bit more broadly about a green premium across the board, you know, every product, every project uh, in the world, uh, you know, is it more expensive to do the green route or the non-green? Now, basically, when we've got to the stage where in every sector, the green alternative is cheaper than the non-green, will have achieved net zero, you know. So we're ha- basically having to push down the green price premium in, in every sector. Now, and that happens. How does that happen? Uh, it happens with government support, R&D, technology, carbon prices. We kind of need to throw everything at that over the next uh, 30 years to, to pull that down and to make the green alternative the, the natural choice and the, and the cheaper. Now, as I say, we can do that with carbon pricing. You know, you, you add on a carbon price and so... In Europe, over the last 15 years, it, it made it better to run gas-fired power plants than coal. In the future, we want a carbon price that means we're running green hydrogen rather than grey hydrogen. So we're needing to use all of these governmental measures to, to flip the market towards the green alternative. But the private sector can help with R&D and, and research and just innovation. So I kind of think it's 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 an issue writ large, but that's the, that's the task we have is to pull the green premium down to a negative and therefore we just uh, have green activities and we're at net zero. And just a follow-up question if I may Michael just you mentioned 30 years now 30 years sounds like the sort of uh, the, the end of this the uh, the outcome how do you see that playing out over the next 30 years how much in the next say three years uh, five years ten years? Well you know, net zero in theory is is by 2050, but a lot of people have started talking much more detailed way about uh, 2030. Uh, and instead of two degrees, it's one and a half degrees. So in some respect, and it's not just scope one and two emissions, it's scope three. So people have been sort of ratcheting up, actually, quite interesting over the last year, uh, the ambition. And I think I've seen over the last year, you know, the focus on net zero means action starts now. Uh, it's costly to defer. Uh, I do tend to think that build back better in, in the West is the sort of sweetener to transition to, to net zero. So there's a political push that we, we get people moving now. Uh, I, I would say all companies are very focused. Um, and uh, in some respects, it's a 2030 goal. Um, I think the UK has a 2035 goal of 78% emission reduction, which is which is aggressive. And that includes uh, the UK share of, of global aviation and, and shipping as well. So there's sort of different measures, but actually 
there's been a telescoping in uh, to the nearer future, I think, over the last year, which I think is very healthy and means people get to work basically now. Brilliant. Thank you. And, and Patrick, your thoughts on the cranium? Yeah, I'll be quick on that. I mean, uh, on the bond market, Farnham covered this, uh, and I have the same view. Um, uh, if, if anything, the, the Greenium is not holding back investor. It is a byproduct of the imbalance between between which will normalize uh, over time. Also, you need to think about the costs. Uh, obviously, issuing um, a, a green bond is more expensive. Uh, you have reportings behind, you have framework to, to maintain and, and so on, but, but this is minor. In other products, uh, think ESG products, um, think equity indices, for example, um, is ESG more expensive or, or, or less expensive? Again, it's all driven by market forces. Uh, what's the liquidity? What's the cost of hedging? And so on and so forth. But again, if you think ESG, it means you are filtering or screening to some extent. So there is a trade-off uh, between liquidity, cost, and ESG-ness, if you want. So if if, if you are uh, very extreme and say, I'm, I'm going to screen and just keep the, the top 10% of companies from a carbon footprint or ESG score, whatever it is, uh, ultimately, it will be much less liquid and, and probably more expensive to hedge. So th there is this balance to, to keep in mind and everything has a cost, but it's driven by, by market forces mainly today. Okay, so moving on to the final question, which is, which types of regulatory intervention will be most effective? And I'm going to ask Michael to kick off with this one, please. Well, thank you. Well, I think I may have intimated already that we, we kind of used to, need to use as many tools as we possibly can. But uh, absolutely, you know, my background as an economics training, obviously the carbon price is, is a key, key measure. We're not going to get a global carbon price, but we are going to get more and more regional carbon prices and the EU price is, is $50 plus. So um, I think that's, that's very positive. Um, beyond that, it's regulation, it's R&D. Um, absolutely, finance and, and governments need to, need to work together. I mean, in some respects, finance is, is kind of value neutral. We supply the services and we need people to be driven to come and, and want them. And in many respects, they'd be driven by, okay, it's partly, you know, having the right product for their consumers, but it's also a, a lot is regulatory driven. So uh, absolutely, that's why COP26 in Glasgow is, is so crucial. Uh, and the more we have net zero commitments uh, from uh, countries, um, that is then translated into domestic legislation or international legislation. And it's, it's, it's all very powerful. Yeah. So I, I'm a, very much waiting for this to happen. Absolutely. E each ratchet uh, forwards is really important indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. I was going to actually pick up on something you mentioned before as well about the uh, the scope three um, emissions and the importance of those and how uh, a year ago I sat through a five hour EU open session on um, open hearing on the, the uh, plans for the um, sustainable finance disclosures regulation. And one of the points was why, you know, is it really the smart thing to do to include scope three given how much work there is to do on it. And the answer was, no, we, we need to be ambitious. We, we need to tackle this. There isn't any time to waste. And I think that's very much the regulator's view on ESG. Whilst there's the the, the need to ensure that um, investment vehicles do what they say on the, on the tin, uh, there's also the need to encourage investment. Um, and um, the way to do that is to gain confidence and to, to get disclosures in, increased. So on the, the regulatory piece, uh, Farnham, what's your, what's your view? 
Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with with both you and and, and Michael. I mean, I, I think a carbon price is probably the the most transformative single step that we could see. And you know, when we um, have some debates with clients sometimes around you know the potential for over regulation in the sense of um, you know the the burden of reporting, the burden of of, of disclosure. I mean, I think many of um, uh, of these things are sort of mitigating around the fact that we don't have um, a really viable carbon price at the moment. Um, Michael mentioned, you know, um, the, the $50 price. I think most companies' internal prices are now moving higher than that. Um, and so I think once we we have that in place, a, a lot of this then becomes built into um, strategic thinking and um, companies will respond with, you know, the um, the, the innovations and the, the research and development that they need to, to be viable, you know, in, in that scenario. In the absence of that, we are um, looking at the regulations around around disclosure. I think the UK's move um, to make climate risk disclosure mandatory has been extremely positive, um, and you know, seeing it also trickle down not only from the issuer side, but also as per yesterday's announcements in, the, in uh, among pension funds, I think that creates a kind of mutual reinforcing circle um, where everyone's asking for the same. Um, data and everyone's asking for the same metrics. And so um, it's not, you know, one company having to stick their head above above the others, but rather, you know, the whole industry is moving in the right direction. Right. Thanks. And, and Patrick? Yeah, I mean, from my side, uh, anything around disclosures and standardization around disclosures and transparency is, is very key because it provides uh, the incentives to the market participants essentially to, to change their view. And it also provides the, the shareholders, uh, be it anyone in the chain, activists, to actually challenge uh, challenge them based on data. And I think that, that really is transformative in terms of behavior. I mean, we've seen TCFDs now that there is work around TNFDs, uh, which are more around natural capital, uh, SFDR for the asset management space, where um, uh, you know you have to to label your your your, your products and so on. All of these things uh, clearly, you know, uh, provide strong incentives. Similarly, on the incentive uh, side of things, uh, capital requirements not something we have seen yet uh, for, for banks typically, but you know the EBA has alluded to it in some of their papers, um, and it's something that might come, and and that's that could be very powerful as well if you you know you have um, higher capital requirement for uh, for non green assets or, or you know gray assets, and 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 you know that will also uh, probably accelerate uh, the move because it will cost you money uh, not to do the, the right thing, and anything around net zero mandate for central banks uh, like BOE will be will be also I think a very powerful tool. So those are things I mean alongside obviously carbon pricing that that was discussed uh, by Michael and and Farnham, those are the things that really can move the dial. Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed, Parnham and Michael and Patrick. Thank you for sharing your insights with us today. This has been the Markets and Securities Services Outlook, a podcast mini-series produced especially for HSBC Global Viewpoint. To learn more about HSBC's Markets and Securities Services offerings, visit gbm.hsbc.com forward slash solutions forward slash securities dash services. Thank you for listening today. This has been HSBC Global Viewpoint, Banking and Markets. For more information about anything you heard in this podcast, or to learn about HSBC's global services and offerings, please visit gbm.hsbc.com.